In the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I promise that not every sermon I preach will begin with the words, When I was in the Holy Land... But I can't resist a second week of sharing some of that experience and hope that you might indulge me this time. In part, last week's All Saints Gospel coupled with this week's Gospel continue that same synergy of God and our Holy Land tour. Whereas last week's message was set in the pastoral and yet slightly menacing threat of the geopolitical landscape of Galilee, this week Jesus preaches in a more chaotic setting in which the threat of Rome is much more overt in the midst of Jerusalem. 75% of Jesus' ministry is set amongst the rolling hills and peaceful shores of a nine-mile stretch of the Sea of Galilee. His words and his work, though challenging to people's daily life and understanding of what it means to be community, are not that threatening to the political power. They are more an invitation to reframe life in terms of relationships over rules or necessary social customs and mores. Jesus offers a different way of thinking about the world and life through his stories and parables, beatitudes and wisdom sayings, even his actions and behaviors while he is in Galilee. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes and invites a bunch of unqualified and untrained people to follow him and help spread his message. It's not perfect. The disciples, especially Peter, say some pretty dumb stuff, and they all fail at the tasks that he assigns them. But he doesn't give up on them or on their work together. Things change when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. No longer is his message one of invitation to transformation through a new way of seeing and understanding the world. Instead, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he begins to preach a more apocalyptic message a challenging message meant to threaten the authority and to call them out. When speaking of the temple, he says, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. In speaking about false prophets, he says, beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Even about the earth, he says, when you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. And finally, he makes it personal. He says to us, but before all this occurs, 
They will arrest you and persecute you, hand you over to synagogues and prisons, bring you before kings and governors. You will be betrayed. They will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Jesus is not threatened by Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. He weeps for her. He pities her. He desires to gather her under his wings of protection, and he warns her of her own impermanence. We started the biblical experience of our Holy Land tour in Galilee, a peaceful and pastoral setting. And after three days there in the countryside by the sea, we headed south, up to Jerusalem. The morning we left our kibbutz was a clear and soft day after the rains the night before. And the further we traveled south, the brighter and bluer the day became. After a morning excursion to a Roman ruin of a first century city, we took a dip in the Jordan River, and then we arrived at the top of the Mount of Olives. Though I had looked at pictures on the internet and had stories describing the location, I was not prepared for the visceral experience that assaulted me when I stepped off the bus. The Mount of Olives stands directly opposed to the Temple Mount, divided by a sharp decline in the landscape that is filled with tens of thousands of Jewish tombs. Estimates run between 75,000 and 130,000 tombs there. When we stepped off the bus, we had a glorious view of the Golden Dome of the Rock. But the sights and sounds and smells of the city overwhelmed us immediately. My first thought was, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. And my second thought was, woe to you, Jerusalem. It immediately became clear to me why Jesus' pastoral preaching and teaching changed so drastically to an apocalyptic take on the world when he came to Jerusalem after leaving behind the Sea of Galilee. There was a camel blocking our path when we tried to get off the bus. Street vendors hawking their wares and trying to get us to pay attention to them by separating us from our group. A guy on a motorcycle kept riding through the midst of those crowded on the sidewalk, yelling at a dog who was running through us and barking, not to mention the sheer number of tourists gawking at the sights, chatting and laughing, and tour guides shouting to keep their groups together. It was pandemonium. There is no peace in Jerusalem. Even as we made our way down the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, there was nothing pastoral about that scene. The streets were narrow and walled and closing in on us, 
limiting our space to walk as we competed with traffic coming from both directions in a narrow one-lane road and shouting at one another to get out of the way, though there was no place for them to go. The Garden of Gethsemane was a bit quieter, but our senses were exhausted after the seemingly non-stop attack of the city in such deep contrast with the quiet and the peace of Galilee and the River Jordan. It felt a bit apocalyptic. It is not simply the chaotic surface level of existence that assaulted our senses that day and the following days in and around Jerusalem that I think Jesus was tying into. Jesus understood what was underneath that chaos. He saw the drive for power and wealth, the expectations of productivity and entitlement, even the more overt threat of Herod and Rome. He saw the temple as a place that should have offered comfort but was more interested in compliance and conformity. And he knew as it allowed itself to be drawn more into the ideologies of man, productivity, power, affirmation of the systems that surrounded it, that the joys of God would be lessened. He knew that those base desires would threaten the temple, and he was right. Within 40 years of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the temple would fall. Roman legionnaires would demolish the temple stone by stone until only the foundation would remain in existence. It would take them three years to pull it down when not one stone would be left upon another, all will be thrown down. Imagine that. Three years to tear down a building. First, the construction of that building would have had to have been mammoth. But secondly, and more importantly, the tenacity and the expense of such destruction would reveal a deep resentment, an anger, a desire to prove who was the greater power or at least so Rome thought. Jesus saw what would happen when ideology and power became preeminent in a religious context. Today we might call that zeal and are quick to point to the shadow side of religious zeal. But there is something even more subversive and destructive when beliefs become tainted by the desires of man we turn against each other. We tear down that which is most holy, most sacred to us in our attempt to destroy one another, or at least not build one another up. In that destruction, we don't simply tear down one another, we destroy the very thing that we believe we are fighting for. Why else would parents and siblings, relatives and friends, betray one another. When we speak ill of our country, our workplace, our schools, our homes, 
even our church. We are tearing down those things stone by stone. Maybe we don't realize how much our thoughts, words, and actions contribute to the problem that we are already so frustrated by, but they certainly do not fix it. We are quick to complain and point out the darkness and slow to heal and find the joy. It's not that complaints are not warranted at times, but when they are not accompanied by constructive thought and creative aspirations, open hearts and non-resistance, they become destructive and demeaning to us as individuals, to our institutions, even to our common life. In the midst of all this darkness, we are called to be light bearers. We are called to speak the good news, not the complaints and negativity. We are called to find the good and relay that to all the world. Jesus says that all this brokenness, all these things that are wrong with the world, gives us an opportunity to testify and that by our endurance, we will gain our souls. We get a choice. We can contribute to the darkness, or we can live the gospel call to share and witness to the good news by finding that which is good and beautiful and true in all of life, in politics, in work, school, home, even church, wherever we may be. That will probably mean that we need to re-examine our tendency to feel entitled to specific outcomes, or at least curb our expectations and open ourselves to our possibilities. It will mean that we must live and engage in a sacrificial existence, giving of ourselves to the things that we truly believe in without defining what we feel we ought to receive in return. Being good news, sharing good news in word and action is hard when you leave the pastoral existence of sea and countryside and enter into the challenges and grind of daily living. But that is the call that Jesus places before us today. It is the call he knows will truly heal the world. We've tried the route of complaint and negativity. Maybe it's time to try a different path. Speak good news, and you will become good news. Amen.